The Bob Murphy Show, episode 272. Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. I thought in this episode what I would do is follow up on some of the stuff that I said in episode 269, the one with Sam Cedar, and then talk a little bit about, well, for whatever reason, I don't even know what started it, but Dave Smith is back in the crosshairs of the, I can refer to him as left libertarians. I don't even know if that's really the best thing to call him, but people who are definitely libertarian and criticize Dave for not being a real libertarian, and they are coming from a perspective of what normally would be issues that progressives would care about. Put it that way. Okay. You can call them left libertarians if you'd like. I don't know if they like that terminology. So that's what we're going to talk about. It's funny. I spent the beginning of the episode of 269 explaining why, yeah, you could call it private law, but you know, really that's not the best terminology. And then when I went to title the episode, I called it, I used the term private law because even I fell into the old dichotomy that that's the best way to try to get across in a very pithy way what it is that I'm talking about. So whatever, let's call it voluntary system of criminal justice or the, achieving the rule of law through voluntary means, put it that way, okay? Because again, I'm trying to paint a picture of is a society where it is just understood that as a matter of course, as a principle of how we conduct ourselves as civilized people, that you can't just have institutions that are founded on the use of coercion. Yeah, it's not that you're going to have a society that is free from coercion, period. But that should be the goal. And so you can't have institutions founded on that. That doesn't work. And you certainly can't have a law enforcement agency or enterprise that derives its funding from stealing from everyone. That doesn't make sense. And that if you resist what they're doing, they will kidnap you and put you in a cage to punish you. Right? That's not the way to achieve law and order is to systematically violate property rights. And I know you could say, no, it's, you're begging the question. I don't know if I'm begging. There's a group of people who really get upset if you say it begs the question when they don't think it does. And they'll say, no, it's raising the question. I have looked at the distinction and I understand when I read it, I understand it. And I even have sometimes good like illustrations, like real pithy examples. Like this is what, begging the question would be, whereas this would merely be raising the question. And I, it just never sticks. I can't ever remember what the distinction is. So whether what I just said was begging the question or raising it, I don't know. Either way, it's, no, there's something different going on, right? So it's not, people could say, oh, well, you know, if you believed in taxation, then that wouldn't be theft, right? That if you owed that your taxes and you didn't pay it, then that's legitimate. It's not coercion. It's not the initiation of aggression right? For sure, in the libertarian framework. And if you think coercion by definition means an initiation of aggression, then it's not coercive, these people would argue, if the state is valid and so forth, 
And that's kind of what we're arguing about, right, Murphy? And I want to say no, because even if you are okay with taxation, like even if you say, hey, I'm not an anarchist, I love the founding fathers and they wrote up a great document. There's checks and balances. You know, yeah, of course, you got to be careful. You don't want to have a tyranny, but you got to have some kind of basic government and whatever. And they need to get paid. So you got to have taxes. Come on, suck it up. Don't be a uh, contrarian individualist freak or something. Come on, you're responsible. You're part of society now. Okay, I get that. But I'm saying even in their framework, they don't think the government literally owns every house in the country. And that's why if you don't pay your property taxes, they can take your house. The way if you take out a mortgage to buy a house, people all kind of realize, like, no, nah, you don't own the house. The bank owns your house until you pay that mortgage off, right? So if you stop making your mortgage payments and they eventually kick you out and take the house, most people, not everybody, there are some people that, you know, support squatters and all that kind of stuff, but saying standard people that they're not ideological in the U.S. at least, I can't speak for other countries. Most people basically get that, yeah, I mean, it's, if it's a tough situation, it's kind of heartless if the bank kicks a mom and her three kids out because she lost her job or whatever. But generally speaking, you don't make your mortgage payments. It's not your house. You got to get out. But yet most people also, even if they, again, support the existence of property taxes, like, well, you got to fund the schools and you got to pay for the fire department house. Even those people don't look at it the exact same way. They don't say, oh yeah, if you don't pay your property taxes after a while, eventually they'll just kick you out and take your house. They don't think it's because really the government owns your house and you're just renting the same way that technically you're just kind of a tenant of the bank until you knock that mortgage out. They don't think it's the same thing. So even if they think that, yes, you are responsible to pay that in the limit, if you just didn't pay your taxes, they could take your house. That to them, it's not because they agree really that the government owns your house. Okay, so that's what I'm getting at there is that the justification in terms of property rights that you would have to use in that scenario is to say you owe the government money for all these services they're giving you in the normal way that they get paid, you are not fulfilling. And so the reason they can take your house, it's not because they're the real owner of it. It's because you owe them money. And if you're not giving it to them some other way, ultimately they can take some asset from you, namely your house. All right. Just like if you didn't have a house and you had a bank account, they could garnish your way. Now, again, you wouldn't be paying property tax if you didn't have a house. But just in general, there's ways the government comes after you and they just take your stuff if they think that you owe them money. Okay, so that would be the way in terms of property rights, you would justify that if you thought it was not theft for the government to ultimately take your house if you didn't pay certain taxes. But then that's where I can say that there's coercion involved is because it doesn't matter whether you think that the service is a good idea or not. It's pretty standard in normal voluntary contracts. Like for it to be a voluntary contract, by definition, it has to mean both parties agree to it. Okay, so it's an abusive terminology to say, oh yeah, the government is providing me services and I'm voluntarily paying for them through my taxes. That No, it's really not. You can say taxes are like paying dues to a club, but they're not literally paying dues to a club or if you prefer, they're not exactly like paying dues to a club. One significant difference is you have the choice to tell the club, I quit, and they can't keep taking your dues from you. Whereas you can't do that to the government unless you leave. And then you say, yeah, well, see, it's kind of the same thing. You know, you have to leave the club. So you, but again, the only way that analogy really works is if the government owns all the land area of the United States. And I don't think most people think that. 
That's not how they view the world. That we're all just literally renters living on government property. The way if some club that you pay dues to, if you said, I quit the club, they can't kick you out of your house, right? They can tell you to stop coming to the building where the club holds its meetings, but that assumes it's because it's their property or they're the ones paying the person to rent that space out every month or whatever. So that's why they have the right to tell you if you stop paying dues, you can't come in here anymore, but they can't kick you out of your house and take your house if you stop paying dues unless it actually wasn't your house and it was legally theirs through some standard mechanism. Okay, so I'm saying even on its own terms, no, there is a qualitative difference between the kind of thing that the state does. So when we talk about a voluntary legal system, I don't mean a world where no one ever does anything wrong. If that were the case, you wouldn't need a legal system. You need a legal system because people break the law all the time. But there's nothing that says in the provision of those legal services, the people and firms involved get to systematically violate normal property rights and that they should have some special prerogative that pizza places and subway operators don't have. Okay. I guess putting it another way is there's no reason that the efficient and just provision of legal and judicial and police services, that that needs to be done by a monopoly that not only stamps out competitors, but also derives its revenue through coercion. There's no reason that that needs to be the case. And so that's why I use different analogies to hit different aspects of it, just to open up your thinking. To say, if you think, well, like the last episode, what we tackled is this idea that, no, oh, the rule of law is really important. And then just to go through and say, well, okay, I'm not going to rehash the episode, but just different aspects of that to see that, yes, the rule of law can be important. That doesn't mean one group of people or one institution needs to provide it, at least within a certain huge geographical area. Okay, so it's that point that I want to elaborate on now, because I was making the argument, I was clarifying and saying, it's not merely that I'm saying we should have more decentralization, more federalism or whatever. It's not that I'm merely saying, hey, instead of having one giant country that's the current, let's look at just consider the continental U.S., borders of the 48 states, contiguous, wouldn't it be better if it was 4,800 little states and there was no, you know, what we now call the U.S. federal government didn't exist. There was just 4,800 little, I mean, they actually wouldn't be tiny compared to other countries, but to our standard, they'd be tiny. And they would all compete with each other. They'd have the different tax codes and blah, blah, blah. And that, yeah, that would be way better, I think, than the current system. But that's not actually what I'm proposing. I'm saying everybody is a free individual, owns property in the conventional sense. And then everything, you just build up from there and just say, there's certain rules you have to follow in civilized society. You can't go and murder people. You can't steal their stuff. And yeah, if you're starting an institution that you think wants to provide law and order, you can't just go around and say the whole community, you've got to give me a certain percentage of your paycheck or else I throw you in a cage. You're not allowed to do that. That's not how you're going to make a difference. You know, like if you have a great idea of a cheaper way, of, oh, I know how to build electric cars. Okay, go ahead. Convince some investors, hire some workers voluntarily, pay the owners of steel and glass and rubber. You have to convince them all voluntarily to go along with your ideas, right? You can't just say, no, no, the idea of an electric car and the investors, they just don't know what's good for them. So I'm going to go and take their money against their will. These workers, if they just saw the way I see it, they would totally want to work at these wages. No, they're not, so I got to force them at gunpoint to come to work, and I'll still pay them, but it's not voluntary. And then I get it. that's not how you do it in a market. And that's not only unethical, but also inefficient, right? If people were allowed to do that whenever they had a great idea, they would squander all of our resources, just besides the injustice of enslaving people and stealing stuff. It also would not be a good way 
to use society's scarce resources to make goods and services valued by the consumer, right? It's just not a good system. Okay, so now that I've warmed you up a little bit, apply that thinking to judicial services, right? And what is it that the judge does? He or she renders an opinion. That's it. That's their job is they go around giving opinions on things. Now you say, well, that's kind of a weird job. Yeah, well, there's food critics. There's people that review cars. Scientists evaluate other scientists' journal submissions. And when people have a dispute that involves the law, they can try to work it out themselves. If they can't reach satisfaction, they can go to a third party and say, we can't agree on this. This is a big issue. It would be in both of our interests to have a third party come in and render an opinion on this. And over time, certain people would gain a reputation for fairness, integrity, and excellence in their rulings. So that both sides seeing that person would say, yeah, for the kind of issue we're having, you know, if it's a divorce, if it's an allegation of shoplifting, if it's an allegation of murder, there'd be different judges, presumably with expertise in kind of niche areas. Just like you don't just go to one guy, oh, that guy's the best doctor in the city. And you go to him no matter what your symptoms are. No, that's not how it works in a market. Right? There'd be judges who were experts in really particular things. Oh, you ordered a bunch of cargo from China and it came over and it was, the crates were half empty. Well, there's a certain judge that you would go to in a situation like that. I mean, not one person. There'd be like six. They'd like, oh, everybody knows, oh, those people are the experts on that area. And they'll look at their case history and go look at the rule. And then you would say to, you know, the Chinese shipper, hey, here's photos. Look at what your containers were like when they showed up here. And they say, we don't know what you're talking about. If I could say something in Mandarin, I would, but I can't, I can't even fake it. So that's what, and then you would say, okay, well, here, here's a list of six judges at these reputable firm, or, you know, oh, and that's the thing too, is if this judge ruled on these cases before, he or she would also be amenable to the Chinese litigants or, you know, defendants in the lawsuit or whatever. Like that's the whole idea is that somebody who gains a reputation in this area, parties that both sides of the dispute are willing to submit to them. That's how you get a case in a voluntary legal system, right? If you're having an argument with somebody and you go to, in our current world, it's hard to think of it as a judge because the judge is often, mostly, it's a government provided thing and there's not really choice. But if you go to see a mediator, right? You know, you and somebody are having a dispute and you submit it to, or arbitration, that's another term. But I think mediators, the way to warm up to it, you can't force someone else to see a mediator they don't trust. That's not how it works. And yet, notice that mediation is a thing. So the fact that somebody has expertise in something means in the past, they have provided rulings that were so fair to both sides involved and were such a seemingly objective application of what the actual legal principles were governing the situation that people in the future who had that dispute thought, by the way, too, a thing that you need to realize is there would be pressure to have someone hear the case, right? You couldn't just obstinately refuse time and again, any suggestion when they say, okay, well, who do you want to submit to? And either not say anything or like say, oh, my brother-in-law, he's an expert in Chinese shipping disputes when the brother-in-law is just, you know, the brother-in-law, the CEO of the shipping company or the brother-in-law of the guy in New York who was trying to import something. And the other, and they have nothing to do with the law. That again, it's, not just the community, like in terms of public opinion online. What do you think about this shipping company? It's other 
major importers. They're the ones whose opinion matters because they're not going to do business with you. Anymore. You see what I'm saying? So it's not that you're trying to win a popularity contest with the public. You don't care about that. But no, if you are a big company, your reputation is going to matter at least in certain circles or else it's going to really hurt your business. And so if you have a reputable, or not a reputable, but a plausible complaint that's been lodged against you and you just refuse any arbitration and people can see that the person arguing with you is suggesting and saying, I'm willing to go to this, 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 and this judge or court system or arbitrator or whatever terminology catches on. And the other thing, no, 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 no. Those guys are all frauds. That, that just, that looks bad. And then other people would shield themselves and try to minimize the business they did with that firm. Right? So yeah, it's not perfect, but the current system isn't perfect either. In this one, there's a lot of built-in self-correcting mechanisms that even if it's something is shady, it gets isolated and fixed more quickly. The system itself is more resilient and adaptive, I would say. Okay, so notice what's really interesting there is it's not that like if two people have a problem that you have to look at, oh, where were they located geographically when this happened? And then which court system applies there? Like that's not necessarily how it would have to happen. In general, two people who have a dispute, as long as they can agree on the person they're going to submit it to, then whatever rules that person, like if, if the two people involved have, to, I think here I'm kind of, I think David Friedman made this point somewhere. So I, I don't think this is original to me, but it's just popping into my head that two people who are Hasidic Jews, they can go to a rabbi and he can rule from that perspective. And maybe the principles they use to determine who was at fault and what the damages are and all that, in that kind of a case to an outsider who's an agnostic or a Christian or whatever might say like, no, I would not go to that rabbi to have him rule on my case. No way. I don't agree with his worldview. Okay. So that's fine. So when you have a dispute with somebody, if it happens to be one of those same Hasidic Jewish guys, then you're not going to go to the agree to go to that rabbi. Okay. So people would know that kind of stuff. Now, where the geography would come in is certain physical locations, property area. The owners might have policies in place to say, if you want to step foot on my property, then you're agreeing to the standard visitor code of conduct as spelled out in this appendix of this blah, 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 whatever. There'd be like standard things that it was understood. Just like I've used the example before, if you go into a restaurant and sit down and they bring you a glass of water, it's kind of understood that if you drank it and then ended up not ordering it and walking out, that might be considered tacky, but that wouldn't really be theft because they're not charging you for the water. And, you know, unless it's, if it's a bottle of water, maybe, and especially like, you know, if it's sparkling water, okay. But if it's just tap water that's in a glass, typically, like I said, if you put the menu down and said, you know what, this doesn't appeal to me and you left, they probably wouldn't call the cops on you. That's for sure. Whereas if you ordered an appetizer, took a bite or two, and then said, oh, this wasn't what I thought it was going to be, and you just walk out, most people, I mean, they still might not call it a cop because it's not worth it, but most people say, yeah, you just stole from them. You really should have paid them for that appetizer. On the other hand, if you order some chicken wings and they bring them, and they don't, there's no prices anywhere, and you eat it, and they say, okay, yeah, that was great. And then they say, okay, that'll be $500, you know, unless you're in Times Square, where it probably is. <laughs> that's not too far off. Most people would say, no, that's fraudulent. Like that's, you don't have to give them $500. They would be stealing from you if we said you did. 
Okay, so again, you can see how customs play a lot into this. It's not that it's like there's 15-page contracts for everything you do. That would be too cumbersome. But ultimately, what's going on there, it's not that, oh, you've got property rights for some things, but for other things, like you just have to give someone water. Like, no, if you were in, I don't know, I've never been to the Middle East or something. I don't know what it's like if you're literally living in a desert there. Do they not bring water to you? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how that works. Maybe I just sounded really dumb. But you could imagine situations where if for some reason a glass of water was really valuable, then maybe it wouldn't be considered standard. Just like, you know, if you order a Coke now in a regular restaurant, they're expecting you to pay for it. So I'm saying the issue is it's not that, oh yeah, sometimes property rights are used and so other times not. It's that it's understood they're giving you that as a gift. Like, yes, that's their water. If you picked up the glass of water and smashed it on the ground, you'd be in trouble for breaking their glass. Right. So they're giving you a gift of the tap water to court your goodwill and to hope that you spend money on their services and food. Right. Okay. Hey, folks, let's take a pause in the action for me to remind you if you like what you're hearing, then I encourage you, if you haven't already done so, to set up a either a one shot or a recurring support payment at bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. There's some incentives there for good as you can get based on your support level. But in general, if you like what you're hearing, by all means, give back to the community. And I do want to mention whether you do it or not, I'm not setting up a transaction. I'm just telling you I'm going to do this. I'm going to resume now doing two episodes in a typical week, one being my solo commentary and the other being an interview. All right. So I'm going to get back on track booking interviews now that things are a bit more stable on my end. So again, thank you for all who have contributed already. But if you're considering it, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. So back to the issue of the judges. So what's interesting is, I think some people, like if the two people are having a dispute, and then if they go to some arbitrator that other people disapprove of, they say, no, no, really what the issue there was, blah, 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 blah. And I want to say, if... They're both happy with it and they go and this arbitrator does the thing and then they both agree to be bound by the decision and there'd be appeals and stuff are possible too. So it can be a sophisticated thing. It's not just a, well, one and done. Like when you agree to be bound by an arbitrator, it could be nuanced like what you were actually agreeing to and you could have the right to appeal. You know, and that would all have to be spelled out. There'd be customs involved and stuff too in terms of what was considered reasonable and so on. It's not my job right now to flesh all that out. I'm just saying those would be the contours of how this would work. But anyway, I think some people recoil from a system like that because like they think, no, there's got to be a rule. There's got to just be. I can't just be any two people who are disagreeing. They just go and get it settled through something. You know, if they go to a witch doctor, what is it? okay, but then it's at least settling disputes. Like that is valuable per se. That is a large part of what the judicial system in a voluntary setting does is it just helps the community feel good that there's not systematic violations occurring and that it helps them determine, given that there's conflict, you know, which party's in the right and which is the wrong, but also it helps the two parties just get over their conflict and get on with their lives. It's not good for anybody if a sizable chunk of the population is tied up in a dispute with somebody else. You want people cooperating and creating stuff. And I don't just mean mousetraps, also writing novels and painting paintings and so forth, right? It's, you don't want people locked in conflict with each other. That's not good. That's not good for anything. 
not good for their families when they go home. Okay. Well, what's interesting, like I say, is I think some people, like, they don't like that system because it just seems too kaleidic, I guess, chaotic, right? Oh, people are just pairwise resolving disputes by going to other parties and just, and I want to say, no, that it's, there's a certain beauty to that. And let me just deal with some possible objections. Because again, if two people are having a dispute and then somebody else comes in and says some words to them and gives them some advice and then it allows them to bury the hatchet and move on with their lives, like that's a good thing. And so for you to get mad because, oh, I don't like the words or the advice that that guy gave to them so that they could get past their problem. He should have said this. Like that's kind of a like busybody thing, you know? And it's like, don't you have other things to worry about? Now, here's the thing. Some people might be saying, no, no, Bob, you're making it too simple. You're making everything like a private tort or something. And no, like there are certain crimes that it's not just what the criminal did to the direct recipient of whatever the issue thing, you know, whatever the bad conduct was, but it's sort of like a, it violated us all as a community. Okay. And I want to say, all right, if that's true, then anybody who was wronged by it can feel free to lodge a complaint and sue the person or bring criminal charges, what, you know, whatever the terminology is in the system. Okay, so somebody, let's be graphic, some guy takes out a knife in a park and stabs somebody and then blood spurts and goes on somebody else's shirt, right? So clearly the main victim there is the guy who got stabbed. Let's say it's a guy. And then what if that guy works something out that he's devout Muslim and the other guy's a devout Muslim and, hey, it was all a misunderstanding and they go and talk to the local, you know, religious authorities and they convince them that we want to set a good example for the community and we want you to let that go and forgive him and so forth. Okay. And then somebody else, well, that's not my community. And look at, he ruined my dress shirt. Okay. So you can go and try to say to the guy with the knife, you ruined my shirt. You owe me compensation. And then, you know, it's the same thing as with anything else. You list a bunch of reputable judges who specialize in that kind of a thing and say, which one? I'm willing to go to any of these eight. And then, you know, see how the guy responds. And I don't think even, you know, among the tightly knit community, I don't think they would just say, oh yeah, if in an act of violence, you spurted blood on some non-believer shirt, the proper thing to do is just say tough. I don't think that's how they would respond. They wouldn't be good for their relations with like, the other community. So anyway, but that's what you would do. Just like in general, if you think somebody wronged you, you have legal recourse in a free society. So I'm saying the same thing here. Just because I'm talking about pairwise solutions, that doesn't stop you from responding to something through the same mechanism, even if in your mind you're not like the direct victim or the main victim. Still, if somebody's actions hurt you somehow or are illegal and you were somebody that was hurt by it, then go ahead and... Now notice, I'm not talking about... There could be cases where the victim is either dead or, you know, is rendered unconscious or maybe is too young. So it, it can't, you know, in the limit, it can't just be, oh, you go up and shoot somebody, take his money. And then if the community is like, whoa, that guy's a murderer, he can't say, well, hey, I didn't hurt you. None of you who are right now mad at me, I didn't steal any of your money. I didn't hurt you in any way. So nobody can bring suit. The one guy who could bring suit against me isn't. So I'm free to go. That's... Not corrected, but I think there the issue is, it gets a little complicated, but I don't want to leave you hanging with that. I think the way you tie up that loose end is when somebody dies, you know, you would 
identify like what's his property, what's his estate, and then figure out who does that go to? Who are the, you know, like, does he have a will? Obviously, in that case, it's easy. But if not, there'd be like standard default procedures for figuring out who his heirs are and how do you distribute the estate. So I would say somebody, you know, he's walking around and somebody walks up in broad daylight and shoots him, that the guy who got shot has a property interest in pursuing that assailant. Just like if he lived, he would obviously be able to bring legal charges against the guy who injured him, right? So just because you die doesn't mean that your estate now doesn't get that. It might be harder to prove in a court of law if your testimony is not there and stuff, but I'm just saying if it's an open and shut case, they got you on camera and all that stuff. It would be weird if the guy comes up and hits you in the head with a hammer. If you live, you can sue him and get a million dollars in damage. But if you die, then your life insurance kicks in your house and all your other property goes to your widow, but she can't come after the guy who killed her husband. Then there's a sense in which, oh yeah, that was a million dollars worth of damage, right? That, that would be weird, okay? So that's how I would handle that. So don't misunderstand me. When I say that you as a distant person can't easily bring suit against somebody for just like killing somebody that didn't directly affect you. I'm not saying you have to be able to do that. Otherwise, murderers get away scot-free. That's not how I'm picturing it. Okay. Now, another thing too is you could say, yeah, but there's certain crimes where what the person does is kind of distribute a lot of little harm over a lot of people. And it's not worth it for any one person to like bring them to court. But he really is committing crimes against the community and or the public and he should be stopped. But your system, Murphy, well, no, because there's such a thing as a class action lawsuit. That's what that's for. It's for cases where the defendant commits in the aggregate a lot of damage, but it's spread out over a large number of people so that, and plus if it's like a big company, they got a lot of lawyers and stuff. So they could easily fight any individual and whatever the judgment's going to be, it's not worth that person to bring it to court and fight for two years. But some lawyers with some resources take on the case and they go around to the 5,000 victims and get them to sign over their rights so that then they go to court in a sense with representing all 5,000 plaintiffs. And so like it's the aggregate group versus the big company. Okay. So that's what you could do, you know, in a voluntary society, that kind of structure would be available too. And you say, well, what about frivolous lawsuits, Bob? You know, what if somebody just said, the fact that some guy down the street I know is in his house smoking the marijuana and that hurts me. And so I want to bring suit against him. Well, depending on the community norms or whatever, that might get thrown out. And the judges say, no, that's, he didn't hurt you in a legal sense. And so the law has nothing to say here. Okay, so that's the way that system works. Let me address one other loose end from that. Somebody on Twitter, when I put out that episode, the Sam Cedar one, somebody said something like, Bob, you just focused on like the rule of law stuff, but you didn't talk about enforcement. That's what Sam wanted to know is some guys approach me in the cabin in the woods. What do I do? Who's going to come stop them? That's kind of what he was getting. So I disagree. I mean, yeah, that is partly what he had in mind, but mostly what Sam and MS to some degree were bringing up against the guy was to say, how can there be a rule of law in your crazy framework? Who's to say what the law is? And so that's why I focused most of my response on that question, like to see it's not weird to think that there would emerge a rule of law and it would be obvious certain behaviors would clearly be illegal. Like there'd be an open and shut case. And then other things would be more subtle, but that's what you'd expect when, you know, complex legal issues, there are subtleties. So that's not 
a knock against the systems because real life is messy. Okay. So that's why I focus on that. But in fairness to the guy, I did talk about it briefly, but it was like a two minute thing and I moved on. So let me just elaborate a little bit on that. So again, what I focused on was to say, how would the community after the fact be able to decide for this dispute who's in the right and who's in the wrong in the eyes of the law and what legally should be done in terms of the, if one party is considered to be a criminal, like what damages ought to be paid or what restitution needs to be made, so forth. So I'm saying that's the hard part, figuring out how there could emerge consensus in the community on questions like that. And once if you solve that problem, the enforcement of those rulings is simple. Okay, so we'll get one thing is, even if there were no enforcement, I would in a heartbeat take that system over the current system. Again, this is why like some of us are so excited about blockchain technology, just being able to put something out there that the community consensus has validated. Even if, you know, nobody with guns is going around enforcing it, just for that truth to be, well, you know, truth in the, you know, the working definition of truth <laughs> is established through the rules of what, however it works. Proof of work, proof of stake, whatever. So that's the important thing. So how would the community respond? If you just had that, somebody says, hey, this employee on the way out, his last shift, he was a cashier, his drawer was short $800. We realized after he had clocked out. And so we're not paying him his you know, the last check that we owed him. We're not paying him. And he still owes us $600. Plus, we feel $2,000 for the hassle of, you know, we had to do this internal investigation and all this stuff. We had to consult our lawyer, blah, blah, blah. And the fact that we're out this money until he pays us back. So we're, you know, we're going to find him for that too. So all told, he owes us whatever, $2,600. And the store takes that to a reputable judge. And the employee says, I don't know what you're talking about. My drawer was fine when I left. Give me my last paycheck. And so they can't resolve it. They send emails back and forth. And so finally the, the store says, I'm listing this judgment, you know, our complaint and we're willing to go to any of these you know, four law firms in the area. And they each have several people on staff that can evaluate our case and render an opinion. It's real quick. Look at the reviews of these. You pick any one of these and the guy doesn't do it. The guy doesn't do it. So that company now, there could be a database somewhere where they could just lodge their complaint about this guy. And then other employers, if he tries to get a job, might just go check that database. And there wouldn't be just one database, right? It's not the Chinese government with a social credit score. There would be competing, which is like you have different credit scores. There's different companies that watch your credit history and they give slightly different scores because there's competition. If you ever thought about that, like in the market economy, in most areas, there's usually like two big firms, maybe not most, but there's plenty of industries where there's two big firms. There's one that's like the leader and then there's the one that's kind of like always just nipping in its heels. I think that's kind of like certain industries are conducive to that structure where there's never just one because then they get lazy and sloppy. And so you always have the one nipping at the heels that like keeps them honest. Like that's actually a good phrase, right? Keeps them honest, literally. So there'd be competing databases and whatever. So if some past employers making stuff up, the employee can correct it and get taken off there. But no, if it's true, if what the employer is saying is, hey, we have this, you know, we allege that this person took this money out of the till or whatever, and he's welcome to give his side of the story. Let's go to a judge. We're not bad guys here. We're willing to, maybe we're wrong. Maybe the security footage that showed him walking out of the store that night with a big bulge in his pants and the fact that his drawer's short 
maybe something else happened. Let him tell his version of events, but sure looks like he's guilty and we're willing to go to it. And he's not, right? So the employer, it's not that he's been convicted or anything, but you as a potential employer are allowed to take that information into consideration. That's not a violation of property rights. That guy's not owed a job. Okay, so I'm saying even without armed men going and hunting him down and taking the 2,600 or whatever the number was away from him violently and then going and returning it to the store, you don't need that. The system would work pretty well. Most people would get in line. It wouldn't be worth the guy eventually. He would have to go talk to a judge or see what the verdict was and pay them off because he'd want to be able to get a job again. And also too, like rent an apartment. You have a tab with certain stores or whatever, you know, all kinds of things that the other side of the transaction is trusting you that you're not a thief. And that if they thought there was a chance you were a thief, they wouldn't deal with you. So that would close a lot of doors. You wouldn't starve to death. And it's a good thing you wouldn't starve to death, right? Because mistakes could be made for one thing. So that's the way that system works. Now, could you up the end? Could there be cases where, yeah, somebody stole 10 cars and they're sitting in the parking lot of this factory down the street with a chain link fence around it and some guys in there with some rifles? Yeah. And if it was worth it, then a company could specialize in retrieving stolen property and they could go in. And again, I think in the interest of relations with the community and just really reassuring the general public that they were a reputable firm and stuff, you would want to recover the property without killing anybody for sure. It's certainly without injuring bystanders and again, preferably not even hurting anybody, but certainly not killing, like being like Batman. And so I think there would be a lot of non-lethal weapons. You, you know, you'd go in there, guys, they would have body armor and stuff, cut the power, go in, try to do it when the people aren't there, using very slow escalation in order to resolve the situation as peacefully as possible and just retrieve the property and that's it. Now, governing that process would be the law. And so you can't just walk up with 20 guys and cut down the fence the barbed wire or whatever, cut through it, go knock out the guys who are shooting you their rifles. You know, you go up there with your riot gear and your bulletproof glass and stuff and throw nets on them and tackle them and maybe mace them or something. Do that and then take the 10 cars and the lot and go take them out and go give them to someone else. If you don't know the context there, if you don't know the history, that itself looks like it's a huge armed robbery. But the reason it's not is because of the legal rulings underpinning it. Okay, so these companies that specialize in recovering stolen property, before they send their team in, they're going to say, we need to be sure that what we're doing is recovering stolen property. Otherwise, we get in trouble. We're liable and we lose goodwill in the community. All right, so that's how that works. You know, in the enforcement, that's simple. The companies just rush in and they provide services so long as they think they're not breaking the law. And again, not because they're angels, but just because for any reason, companies would be hesitant to break the law. Right? If you're a pizza company, you wouldn't want to just willy-nilly put poison on your pizzas. Why would you do that? And likewise, if you're a firm specializing in recovering stolen property, you wouldn't want to work for someone who was paying you to go steal cars. That would be a terrible business decision for you. Okay, so that's how that works. Now, quickly, the stuff with Dave. I'm just going to make a few quick points on this. So the problem is Dave said something along the lines of, and again, I don't know exactly what, provoke maybe the news or something started this, but Dave was saying, oh, if a mass of uninvited immigrants come in against the wishes of the domestic population, then that's not voluntary. So 
a libertarian doesn't have to be for open borders. It's more nuanced. And so then there was just a wave of outrage from people. You know, this guy doesn't know libertarianism 101. Oh my God, he's just clearly, he's afraid of people who don't talk like him. He knows what the answer has to be to satisfy his racist followers. And then he's reasoning backwards to get there. Oh my God, can you imagine applying that logic to anything? Oh, what if the public doesn't want people to smoke weed? Then I guess it's okay to ban it, right? Okay, so I'm not even saying they're morons. I'm just saying that's the kind of response he was getting. So then Dave was saying, well, no, you... And some of the principles they were given to, like, you know, freedom of movement is an essential human right. And who is this arbitrary, you know, that this group of people in Washington just arbitrarily telling people where they can and can't move? That's not libertarian. And so Dave would say, okay, so if some adult man comes into a public school and just camps out in the third grade classroom doing mess, we couldn't possibly escort him out of the building, right? Because we'd be interfering with his freedom of movement. And who are the government officials to do that and so then you know the people you can't tell the difference between you know a school that's been homesteaded versus uh, okay so <laughs> and my point with all these things is like the rules or the principles they were announcing to show Dave why he was wrong would justify or would imply a certain stance on government policies in other scenarios where the analog to open borders would be what most people think is crazy that there are some consistent libertarians, like Walter Block, I think is consistent on that, where he he's, I don't know if he uses the phrase open borders, but he doesn't want, at least as of the writings I saw, doesn't want the federal government in any way impeding the ability of foreigners to relocate and live inside the borders of the United States. But he also says like, yeah, if homeless people want to come into a so-called public library and camp out, the cops can't make them leave. And because he thinks that'd be a violation of libertarian principles, but also he welcomes the idea that that would make the system collapse. Like he thinks that would be a good thing in the long run. Just like some of us think if the federal government defaulted on the debt, you know, if they just stopped making payments on time and treasuries, that would be very painful in the short term, but it actually might be good in the long run because then maybe investors wouldn't lend money to the U.S. government so liberally. And in the long run, that's probably good if the U.S. government has trouble raising funds. Okay, so I'm saying Walter Block at least is consistent, but most people don't think like that. Most people, even self-described open borders libertarians, aren't losing sleep at night if, you know, the library closes at nine o'clock at night and says, everyone's got to get out. We're <laughs> turning the lights off and closing the door. You can't stay in here. Most people will say, oh, who is the government to tell me where I can and can't put my body? Sure, if it's a private library, the owner can do whatever they want, but this is a public library and clearly public lands. There can't be any rules on who gets to traffic among them, right? So most people would say that's kind of being goofy. At the very least, they would acknowledge if someone is saying the government can rightfully tell people you can't stay in the library after it gets closed. This is library. Shh. That, oh, the only reason you could have for that is that you're a xenophobic racist and you can't stand certain people making your library dirty or something. Like that, no, just in general, say if the library closes at nine, people got to get out. That doesn't mean I'm a xenophobe for saying that, right? So likewise, someone to say, yeah, I think the government should kind of pay attention to how many people come in and maybe they need to regulate that and not just have a free-for-all. Like somebody who thinks like that, that doesn't necessarily mean you must be some kind of monster. Okay. Last thing I'll mention on that is one particular argument people were using 
wasn't quite right, but I think it's an interesting thing. So I just want to spell it. It doesn't even have so much to do with the immigration debate, but just I realized that there was like a fallacy involved. So they were saying to Dave stuff like, oh, if some immigrant comes in and then, you know, who's forced to hire them? Who's forced to sell them food? Who's forced to rent an apartment to them? Who's for, And then Dave came back and did list a bunch of coercive things. Like he's saying, well, there's anti-discrimination laws. So actually, if these people apply for a job, the employer might not, even if they didn't want to hire them, they might have to because of the law. So like there's coercion involved and blah, blah, blah. And then the left libertarian came back and, oh, okay. So except for this small percentage of bigot employers, no one's being harmed. Okay, so you see what, what's going on there. And I understand this. I do. I know it's coming off like I'm totally in Dave's camp. I understand where both sides are coming from, but I think Dave is acknowledging that, yeah, I see what you guys mean, but it's more nuanced than that because blah, blah, blah. He's not just calling them idiots. He's saying your principles are too crude or simplistic because you just justified this scenario over here and I don't think you meant to. Okay, so in that same spirit that I'm just pointing out that when they try to come back, it's more nuanced. So for example, what I'm trying to get to is the fact that someone domestically hires an immigrant, that by itself, and let's say it's totally voluntary. It's not because there was, you know, anti-discrimination laws. Like, no, the person thought for this position, I want, yes, this immigrant right here, this illegal immigrant, just to be clear, is the best person for the job, given the wages he's asking and blah, blah, blah. I'm, I pick him over anybody else. I'm not being forced to by the government. Okay, so... I'm saying that does not mean that that person consented to or is happy with mass immigration, right? I'm just making this up. Like, not that this would happen in practice, but it's theoretically possible. So just to show the logic of the situation, that you have an initial situation where there's 100 million domestic residents, citizens, and then a million immigrants come in illegally and they congregate in certain cities. It is entirely possible or there's nothing logically impossible about it that every single one of the domestic citizens says i would have preferred a situation in which those illegal immigrants were not allowed in and yet given that they're here now given the new reality that i don't like compared to the status quo this particular one is willing to do this job for me for a lower wage than other people want to, as I look around, and so I'm going to hire this guy to do that job for me. So yes, given that there's now a million immigrants living in my country, and I wish they weren't, whether or not I hire this guy to paint my house or something, isn't going to change the fact that there's a million people living in my country that I wish weren't there. So on the margin, hiring that guy doesn't affect that bigger issue. So the fact that I do hire him voluntarily doesn't actually mean I'm in favor of open borders. And it doesn't mean that I've consented to the whole thing. Okay. So again, people are probably reading into this. Like, oh, so Bob, you're hopping after. No, I'm not saying that. I don't want the federal government doing anything. I don't think the federal government should prosecute murderers. I actually, that's actually a state level thing. It'd be better if they did things consistently, right? Like it would be weird if the government just stopped prosecuting murder, but prosecuted everything else, including punishing people who are trying to set up competitive police and judicial services. That would not be a good policy mix but if the government just got out of it altogether, then yeah, so there's a certain sense in which I don't want the state punishing murderers. So from that perspective, I certainly don't want the state punishing somebody who's crossing a line. My ideal solution is to privatize everything. So all the, the border with Mexico right now, instead of it just being, what should US policy be? 
if there were a thousand different little property plots along that border, each of those thousand owners could decide what they wanted to do with their particular border with Mexico. And then you say, oh no, but what if there's a weak link somewhere and they let all kinds of people come in? Okay. And if the rest of the community didn't like that, well then now just imagine the border just being Mexico plus that little plot of land. And that's the new border with the United States. Okay. That's fine. All right. So I'm, I'm not saying I just solved everything, but I'm saying that's logically the way it would work. There's nothing inconceivable about that. All right. And you say, okay, but give me a better, I don't have, no, there is no good answer. Both sides have a legitimate point. Just like, should there be prayer in public schools? There is no good answer to that. Both sides are right. And the only answer is to privatize everything and let the schools set their policies and parents can patronize whatever schools they want or homeschool. That's the only way to solve it. Okay, but again, my modest point is the fact that even if every immigrant who sneaks into the country ends up renting an apartment from someone and getting a job and doing all kinds of voluntary transactions, technically, that does not mean that it would violate the wishes of the community if that person had never been allowed in in the first place. Don't get me wrong. Empirically, I think a lot of people would be okay with it. They probably would make exceptions. Oh, yeah, these guys are all right. But I'm talking about, you know, those immigrants that, the troublemakers. That's why I mean. Not these guys are, did my roof. Those guys are great. I'm sure there's a lot of that in reality. And good. So that's partly why I want it to be a voluntary community thing that's organic is because I think markets and free associations solve a lot of these problems. A lot of prejudices and it gets amped up in the political system with these huge arguments and different sides and partisanship. In reality, if you had this, it was all voluntary and private property or set whatever rules they wanted about who could come out of their land and who couldn't, I think people would get along much better. All right. I think that's a good stopping point. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.